0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is Dave Zirin, and we are discussing the book he co-authored, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, published in October 2011 by Haymarket Books. It is often said that sports and politics don't mix. But if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that's not the case. Many of our past guests have talked about the interconnection of sports and politics in Taiwanese baseball, in English rugby union, in South African soccer, and in American college football. Scholars of sports insist that politics are always present, but fans and newspaper writers and sports radio hosts typically avoid discussion of politics and sports. For the last decade, Dave Zirin has been one of the few sports writers to regularly discuss politics. His previous books have looked at the political and economic issues surrounding contemporary sports, as well as the history of sports and political protest. In his newest book, Dave presents the story of an iconic figure in that history, the Olympic medal-winning sprinter John Carlos. As Dave explains in the interview, it is a difficult thing to write another man's life story, but his book does this marvelously, revealing Carlos as a compelling character, a remarkable athlete, and a man fiercely committed to the cause of social justice. This was a book I found hard to put down, and it's one that I've talked about a lot with my family and friends. It was a pleasure to talk to Dave about his work in writing it and his relationship with John Carlos. So let's turn to the interview. My guest this week on New Books Sports is Dave Zyron. Dave, welcome to the program, and thanks for coming on. Hey, great to be here, Bruce. So to start, we'll have you say a few words to introduce yourself, and I'll tell the listeners that Dave is the author of five previous books on contemporary sports and sports history. He's the host of the weekly radio program, Edge of Sports. He's written for a variety of publications He's now the sports editor for the Nation magazine, and you're the first sports editor in the magazine's history, right?
1: Yeah, or even sports writer.
0: <laughs> and so, tell us how did you get into how did you get into journalism and sports writing in particular?
1: Well, I, I've always been a huge sports fan. I've always been a huge uh, fan of American history, and I was always fascinated by the way that sports and politics intersected at different times in history. And I was working for a newspaper uh, in Prince George's County, Maryland, Um, the only African-American-owned newspaper in Prince George's County, which is significant because Prince George's is the only municipality in the history of the United States that's gone from majority white to majority African-American while becoming wealthier and better educated. So it's a very unique uh, part of the country. And uh, I had a sports column at the Prince George's Post and – I wrote a column that a lot of my sports columns were very sort of basic and antiseptic and typical of just, you know, how the local football team was doing, a new coach, human interest stories. And a story floated across the wire that really interested me. It was about the way the University of Alabama seemed poised to hire their first African-American football coach, a Bear Bryant protege named Sylvester Kroom. And instead went with Mike Shula, who is the son of Don Shula and a former Crimson Tide quarterback. And Jesse Jackson raised a protest to this and said that it was, um, it was linked to the Southeastern Conference and Alabama's legacy of racism, that they couldn't hire a black football coach. And I remember reading a leading columnist in USA Today telling Jesse Jackson that he should just shut up because what does he know about who would make a better coach and he's playing the race card and all the rest of it and I saw that and I thought well you know this story is actually a great way to maybe educate people about the the history of Alabama and what this does say and also defending Jesse Jackson's right or anybody's right to say something about sports if they feel like it's political and so I I wrote that column and uh, my uh, boss really liked it and encouraged me to keep pushing with that, and particularly writing about sports in a way that reflected uh, the politics of race and racism in the United States and using it as a lens. And uh, my brother-in-law, who does computers, started putting the columns online, and I started getting them published on different uh, – both sports outlets as well as uh, left-wing political outlets – like Counterpunch, Common Dreams. And then uh, Haymarket Books offered me uh, the opportunity to write a book called What's My Nameful? Sports and Resistance in the United States. And it's all flowed from there.
0: So I'm surprised your editor said stick with this.
1: Yeah, I am too. Uh, to this day, I am. Uh, he, he was somebody and is somebody who uh, believed very strongly that it's okay to ask questions. And then that's really the job of an independent press. And in Prince George's County, so many of the papers were being bought up by the Gazette and Gannett and all, all the, the big companies. And he, he really, he knew we didn't have the resources to go out and beat, beat the Hustings, but he knew that we could at least try to do an analysis that was different. And, you know, I jumped on it because it allowed me to really, you know, really satisfy my political jones my historical jones and my sports jones all together and what we found out when we started putting the columns online was that there really was uh an audience out there that that believed in the same kinds of things so
0: you've received a lot of uh, acclaim for what you've been doing as as really the only person out there writing about sports and politics and economics uh but i would say you probably received a lot of a program as well
1: yeah oh my gosh um, especially just in the last few days where I was highly critical of the way the NFL was, I thought, exploiting 9-11 and using uh, 9-11 to brand their league as being this hyper-patriotic and militaristic spectacle. And I uh, you know, got a lot of flack for that, I mean, because you still have this idea that says that athletes and writers should just shut up and enjoy the games. And there's a problem with that, though, because at its most basic, that implies that sports at its most normal is an apolitical exercise. And I always say to people, geez, I really wish sports was a la carte. I wish I could just tune into sports and have it just be sports. But sports, even at its most normal, is a profoundly political spectacle. I mean, just think about the... The, the sexism in sports, I mean in terms of like the amount of coverage that women's sports gets or the ubiquitous cheerleaders at NFL games. Think about uh, the patriotism and militarism that we just saw on the anniversary of 9-11 and the way sports was used as a as a real platform for that. Uh, think about, my God, I live in a town where people root for a team called the Redskins, for goodness sakes, as if that's not political. I mean, think about the fact that you've never had a male gay player in any of the main sports come out of the closet. I mean, the, it's because these are, there are political norms at work. And so many writers in sports, and certainly the owners, they're, they're what I call the, the keepers of normality, you know they're the people who are like the gatekeepers and they're there to wrap you on the knuckles if you dare raise uncomfortable questions about politics and sports but I think as long as the questions are there I mean you have to ask them I mean it's so easy to succumb like like you say something is racist and they say you're playing the race card and it's like well actually something racist just happened so you're not playing the race <laughs> card you're pointing something out I mean there's so much of that in sports like there is in mainstream politics but I think, I think you have to be committed to, to seeking it out and you have to be committed to, to shining a light on it because that's really the only way we can respond because I'm not a billionaire like these owners. Uh, people who read my stuff don't tend to come from that ilk. You know. There's no way to really fight fire with fire on that regard, but you can create awareness and you could use sports as a lens to talk about some very serious truths about, about our society.
0: And then also to clarify, you're still a big sports fan.
1: I am, and that, that's part of what motivates me, because I think that this should be a process of reclamation, not rejection, and that a lot of people who see themselves as being left-wing uh, or progressive or radical or what have you, they reject sports. I mean, they reject it like a vegetarian would reject a McRib or a Big Mac. Like, they just say, ah, this is part of the problem, and then and then they also condemn others who are into it, and I really do think that's very much the wrong approach I mean, I think we have to say, well, wait a minute. Sports has been part of the human experience from as long as people could bathe and clothe and feed themselves. People played games. Why would we reject this out of hand? And then people say, oh, yeah, well, well, well this, we're talking about corporate sports. And it's like, well, well, no. I mean, sports have become more corporatized in time. But sports are also something that's a site of community cohesion, a site of uh, local solidarity, a site of fun and play, escape. And I I see no reason to give that up and and surrender it to people who would hijack it for their own political ends.
0: So let's turn to John Carlos, and uh, you've known John for quite a while. He was your first guest on the first episode of of Edge of Sports, and you've you've had him on the program since then. So I want to ask you, uh, how did you get to know him?
1: Well, I got to know John Carlos. John Carlos was also the first ever sports interview I did that got published on a website other than the Prince George's Post. Um, I, I thought it would be a good idea. I thought, you know, I really using my, the paper as, as an excuse, you know, the Prince, to, to interview him on, I believe it was the 35th anniversary of John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising their fist at the 1968 Olympics. And I. Uh, First of all, it was like I I, I just searched his name online and I found an old website that had an actual phone number at the bottom of it. And I just called the phone number and he picked up the phone. And we ended up having a pretty intense, incredible conversation. I mean, this was 2003. And John Carlos really did start to get re embraced by 2008. But by 2003, he was still somebody who was very much alone, very much being treated like he told me in that interview, like somebody who had some kind of disease, who people were stepping around and speaking around and not engaging with, like he really felt like he was alone on the island, as he put it. And the interview that we did, I mean, it ended up getting just a lot of play around the internet. And it seemed to connect with people. It actually reignited John Carlos's friendship with George Foreman. They'd known each other since 1968 at those games. And John and I just struck up a relationship out of that. And we did several other interviews over the years. Like you said, he was the first guest on my radio show. And John approached me about saying, you know, you should write my book. And I I jumped at it. I really did jump at it because – I'd never written a biography before, but I knew that he had amazing stories, and I'd also seen him speak in front of a crowd. I'd done a couple panel discussions with him at conferences by that point, and he's just one of the most amazing public speakers I'd ever seen, and I just couldn't believe the, the reservoirs of talent in this guy, and so my vision was not just doing the book, but going on a speaking tour with him. And speaking about his life and speaking about the book, I mean, that that's what was so attractive to me, was putting him in front of a crowd. And I'd seen the way people responded to him. Like when we, we did speaking stuff together, people would come up to him with napkins, with old photographs, with uh, their shoes, and just ask him to sign it. And so I thought, wow, what if we had a book that he could sign? How great would that be? Especially because he has so many cool stories from growing up and I thought telling his story could answer these two two questions, and the the, the two questions are both the same word. It's why. Why did John Carlos risk so much in 1968, but also why do people still care 40 plus years after the fact? Those were two questions that that I was wrestling with, that I wanted to get a better handle on, and I thought we could write a book that could answer those questions.
0: So let me ask, why did he want to write his story four decades after 1968? What led him to say, to come to you and say, it's time to write my story?
1: Well, I think there was a part of him that wanted to set the record straight, that wanted people to know that it wasn't just a moment, it was a movement. It wasn't just this one second that took place right there. I also think he wanted to know... People to know about the price that he had to pay for doing that, that it wasn't easy. I think he wanted to have his story out there so people could have a full reckoning with the kind of motivation that it takes to do something like he did. And then the kind of price you have to pay so people could use their own hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike athletic platform to actually say something about the world. I mean, I just think he wanted it to live. And breathe in a way that it really hadn't in the past, and so I'm 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 just I'm very very honored that he thought he trusted me with his story. There were times uh, when writing it that I was just in, in a bit of a state because I was terrified that if people didn't like it, it wouldn't be a comment on my writing, which I can handle, but people would see it as a comment on him. And, uh, that, that, that kept me up some nights, but the, the early word on the book has been so positive and I knew it would be because his stories are so good. And also I felt like I'd known him long enough. Like we did hours and hours of interviews together and I really felt like I I knew his voice. I really did. And he's such a good storyteller that, I mean, it, it just was the sort of thing where we took just. Tens of thousands of words of transcripts of interviews, and then just I went through them sentence by sentence and made sure it was coherent so I mean the creative aspect on my part was was incredibly minimal i mean i was I was more like a, an editor slash stenographer mm-hmm. than a writer And that's a t- tribute to him
0: yeah, I actually wanted to start with that to ask about the uh the process of writing and the style and um and maybe to get a sense of it for the listeners, um, will you read a section for me right at the start in the, in the first chapter? So it's a chapter titled Harlem World. Sure. And uh, so you read that first paragraph, please.
1: Sure. Harlem, born and raised. I came to this earth on June 5th, 1945. I was a breech birth, which meant that I arrived with my backside facing the world making it that much more difficult for everyone around me. Funny that. 626 Lenox Avenue was my first address. It was roughly half a block from the Savoy Ballroom, maybe just another stone's throw to the Cotton Club. If you don't know the names of those two magical places, then you need to look them up. This was where you could find music, dance, and the finest performers of the 20th century. Right in the heart of Harlem, where the days were rough and the nights came alive as the swells came uptown because we were the home of the best. Growing up, it made me feel to be so close to so much greatness that I didn't have to sit on the back of anybody's bus.
0: So that's a great opening. And uh, and I have to tell you, as a reader, right from that start, when I, when I was reading that, um, I had the sense of, you know, not as a reader where you're, where your eyes are passing over the words, but that there was an audible voice narrating that story inside me which which you know is tribute to him for these great stories and tribute to you as a writer and so um you know just looking at that beginning uh to kind of focus on the process how did you you know how did you convey that because that is and and like you're saying you'd never ghost written anything before you'd never written biography how did you capture that voice
1: well i learned that it really really helps to know the person in advance, like uh, just after it came out, a person who I don't want to name, but a a, a very well-known uh, uh, political person got their hands on the book and got in touch with me about doing it with them, and I, I turned it down, and I did it because I knew that this book's Greatness, and I do think it's a great book, is not really about anything I did. And that's not false humility. That's the real deal. I mean, that's not false humility at all. That's me looking reality in the face. I know John. I know him very well. I've spent hours talking to John. I knew his stories before I had to ask them about him. I'd spoken on panels with him, and I, I drank very good liquor with him. I mean, I just knew the way... That his mind worked, and I knew that it was kind of like capturing lightning in a bottle. Like, it's not something I think I could do again. I mean, I can maybe think of a couple other people who I know that well who I could do it with again, but I certainly couldn't roll out of bed and do it. No way, no how. And its uh, I really do think it's a great book, but I think it because it's his voice. And the toughest thing for me doing it was I I really likened it to no kind of writing that I'd ever had to do before. Because I I was used to writing in the other books like you get inspiration, you do 30 pages and you don't even feel the clock move. And then you have hours of just depressed uh, (laughs) block and then bam, you get a jag of creativity and then depressed block. Like that's what I was used to. This was so different from that. This was like breaking rocks or something i mean this was like slow work because the big fear sentence after sentence and this was something that my editor at Haymarket said to me said this can't read like a long studs turkle monologue yeah like it can't be like the authentic voice of john carlos where you're basically just a stenographer like it can't it can't be that yeah and my first draft was that. And so then going back to it, and I went back and read some Studs Terkel to be like, this is what I don't want it to be. <laughs> and then just going through it, and then I read some, some autobiographies that I really liked, like uh, Giant Steps, about sports autobiographies, like Giant Steps by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Up for Glory by Bill Russell, and then went back to it. And, uh, it was, it was a real challenge because it's like, you know, going through it sentence by sentence to make sure it both has his voice, but at the same time, isn't stenography.
0: Well, the work paid off. It was really, uh, a great book to read and it, it was a, uh, a page turner in the best sense, you know, to follow his story, to just keep following his story. So, uh. Uh, so I enjoyed it a lot. So let's turn to his life. Let's turn to John's life. So as you read read just there, John was born in nineteen forty five. And can you give a sketch of his early years? So so he grew up in Harlem. Could you talk about his family background and what were the influences on his on his early years?
1: Yeah, I mean that that's a really I'm really glad you, you asked I'm really glad you asked that. Because that question that we started this with, which was why? Like why would he take this chance? I think it's just deeply rooted in a lot of his upbringing. I mean, John, I think one of the first things that are very interesting about John Carlos is that his father was a World War I veteran. So you think about that for a second. His father was a World War, not World War II, World War I. So he's born in 1945. So his father was old mm-hmm. at the time he was born. I mean, his father was um, one generation removed from slavery and up from the area of sharecroppers. And yet his father also ran his own business. His mother was a full-time worker at Bellevue Hospital. And so he had, uh, he, he had stability in a Harlem that was becoming increasingly unstable. Mm-hmm. His home became kind of a refuge for friends of his who had family members from broken homes, uh, who had uh, family members who had issues with drugs or alcohol, He remembered viscerally seeing the white flight from Harlem as he grew up. And at the same time, like I read in opening that paragraph, growing up in Harlem at that time meant growing up around greatness. Mm -hmm. It meant seeing Malcolm X walk up and down the street and skipping alongside him and asking him questions. It meant seeing the way white people would come uptown to pay tribute to the Savoy Ballroom and the Cotton Club. It meant feeling like you didn't have to ride on the back of anybody's bus. So he, he grew up with, with a profound sense of self confidence. And then he found, largely by accident, that he was just an unbelievably fast athlete, mm-hmm. world class speed. And he gets a scholarship to go to East Texas State, and he's immediately thrust into an entirely different world. You know, a world where. Not only is he expected to ride the back of the bus, but where he's expected to really smile about it, Mm -hmm. accept it. And this, I think, had a tremendous effect on his system and got him to the point that when he heard that there were rumblings of an African-American boycott for 1968, for him it was a no-brainer that this is something I want to be a part of, that there's just too much injustice in the world. And I'm not going to be quiet about it. And he was also somebody who was really aware of what was happening all around him. And like think about everything that was swirling around 1968 from the assassination of Dr. King to uh, a few years earlier the assassination of Malcolm X which he recounts in the book about driving down to the, the hospital when he heard about it and just being out of his head. Uh, to, of course, everything that was happening internationally from the French strikes in 68, the Prague Spring, uh, the, the anti war movement that was happening, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, which also had a strong effect on him, and the assassination of the hundreds of Mexican students and workers in Tlatelolco Square, who the people you know, in John Carlos's group, the Olympic mm-hmm. Project for Human Rights, were talking about meeting up with. So, when, so, all of these things led to him feeling like they had to do something, that something had to be done no matter what the price would be paid. And that's a good way of understanding that first why. Mm-hmm. And It was the times, but it was also a set of personal experiences that for him exposed the gap of the kind of person he thought he was and the kind of person who society saw him as.
0: So looking at his childhood one thing that that was striking is he was a uh, you mentioned him you know kind of tailing after Malcolm X in the neighborhood uh but he was also a uh an activist from an early age and he was not a, he was not a movement activist he would act in many instances individually when he saw injustice and he would have to speak about it or act against it even when in in some cases the acts were illegal
1: yeah, I mean, he was almost like, a, like a, a Harlem anarchist, you might say, like in the old classical sense of it. Like he was somebody who, and he tells these stories, I don't even want to tell the stories, I want people to read the book, and I also I can't <laughs> do them just as he does them. But let's just say that he was a very aggressive activist against his principal in junior high, uh, against the housing authority, against his landlord. And he did whatever he had to do to try to make the kind of statement that needed to be made.
0: So you mentioned already he uh, he gets started running running in high school. He's uh, running in and winning amateur meets in the Northeast. Uh, he had difficulty in gaining a college scholarship because he had bad grades, which he later finds out is due to the fact that he has dyslexia.
1: Dyslexia, yeah.
0: And he goes to college in in East Texas State University. And so, what does he encounter? when he comes to Commerce, Texas?
1: Well, the first thing is segregated bathrooms at the airport. I mean, it was just like something that in Harlem you only read about in newspapers. You only read about it in the, the Amsterdam news. It just It's like something out of another world. And then he just encountered the expectation that he was going to be a certain kind of black American, mm-hmm. that he was not. And part of that was the times. Part of that was that his father was Earl Vanderbilt Carlos, who, like, really raised him with the idea that he didn't have to take a backseat to anybody. I mean, his parents gave him, I think it was because they were both full-time workers, they gave him and his brothers and his sister extraordinary freedom and latitude uh, to to walk the streets of Harlem. I mean, it speaks to, like, their confidence in their children and their confidence in the safety in the neighborhood, and John Carlos took that freedom, really, and ran with it and thought that that was just life. Everything was like a big kind of like black nationalist party in the sense of like it was a pride, mm-hmm. manhood. Like all, none of these things were questions for him. I mean, he knew Malcolm X, for goodness sakes. No one had to tell him about black manhood or anything of the sort. And then going to East Texas, it was, it was like being instantly infantilized. And it was something that uh, that, that really did shake him. Because it was like, this is my only option is to come here and be an athlete. But, and then I, that's the only way I can get to the Olympics. But then, as the statement of the Olympic uh, Project for Human Rights said... It's like you, you run in the Olympic Games, and then you just crawl home.
0: So can you talk about uh, um, how the Olympic Movement for Human Rights was organized? So he was involved right from, right from the start. So, so who was involved with him, and, and what were their aims? What were they seeking to do at the Olympics in 68?
1: Well, their original aim was to organize um, a boycott of the 1968 Games of African-American athletes. And they had four central demands that their boycott was aimed around. Uh, one was uh, the, the firing of Avery Brundage as the head of the International Olympic Committee. I mean, Avery Brundage was the person who delivered the 1936 Olympics to Hitler's Germany. And uh, he was seen as a stone racist. And they thought it was inappropriate for him to head the IOC. One was the hiring of more black coaches, One was the restoration of Muhammad Ali's boxing title, which had been stripped because of his opposition to the war in Vietnam, and one was the expulsion from the Olympics of South Africa and Rhodesia because they were apartheid countries. So they had this internationalist perspective, and the boycott really was gaining some steam. But the Olympics caved; the Olympic committee caved early and banned Rhodesia and South Africa, and that took some of the wind out of the sails. But the thing that really took the wind out of the sails was they were asking a lot. I mean they were asking people who trained their whole lives for this one, of, one, of, for one event for just 10, 20 seconds of time and telling them to give it up. Mm-hmm. And John Carlos was willing to give it up. Tommy Smith, Lee Evans were all willing to give it up. But most people weren't. And so without a, a widespread uh, breadth of people, it was seen as better that we have to go down there and do something and make some kind of stand. Now, it was pretty unclear what kind of stand that was going to be. But when they got there, uh, the decision was made to try to do some kind of incredible demonstration of their various grievances. So they made the decision to go on the – Tommy Smith and John Carlos – to go on the medal stand without shoes to symbolize black poverty in America – they made the decision to go on st- on the metal stand with beads to symbolize lynching. Uh, they made the decision to wear black gloves to show black unity and black power. And they made this decision even not knowing that they would be both on the metal stand together, mm-hmm. which is also just extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like you watch the race and you could see John Carlos break out to the lead And constantly look to see that Tommy Smith is there, so much so that he completely ignores Peter Norman coming from the other side, the Australian runner who barely nipped John Carlos for the silver. And Peter Norman was somebody who knew what they were doing and was sympathetic to them and wore an Olympic Project for Human Rights patch Mm -hmm. on the ceremony stand with them. And when they got up there, John Carlos made the personal decision that he was also going to have his jacket unzipped, which was a huge breach of Olympic protocol because he said he wanted something that symbolized his affection and solidarity with both black and white workers back in New York City. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Yet that's not what the news attempted to portray. Mm-hmm. All they said was black militants on the metal stand. Uh, the Los Angeles Times described it as a Hitler-like salute. Uh, Brent Musburger, who then was a very little-known uh, writer, uh, who's now, of course, become a very famous sportscaster for decades, he called them dark. He called them uh, black-skins stormtroops in the Chicago American, and they were immediately kicked out of Olympic Village. And Avery Brundage immediately spread the fiction, which still exists to this day. That their medals were stripped, Mm so warning to others. But their medals actually were not stripped, so this was all they had to deal with when they got back home. But so that their ambitions were very high, Bruce. They Mm -hmm. they were they wanted to go there and really make a statement before the world, and they did just that. But you know, in, in those days when there wasn't a lot of analysis of pop culture and how to manipulate it or anything like that. They found that the depth of their message was immediately made very shallow for the purpose of demonizing them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you. So, you know, so that whole scene around the the protest is the the focal part of the book. And so, I don't want to talk more about that because, like you, I want people to read the book. But I want to ask you, as somebody who's written about sports history, just how provocative a statement was that that they made on the medal stand.
1: I mean it was one of those moments where it was absolutely the right place right time for the the most incendiary type of statement it was like the confluence and it of was the timing. An,
0: and let me say it was an incendiary statement correct because we Definitely. you know we look at the picture now we see these two guys raising their arms and and it doesn't it, it isn't as provocative to us now as it would have been then correct
1: Correct. And, and that's what the issue of context is so important, like coming in the wake of the King assassination and the subsequent riots, coming in the wake of the hundreds of students who'd been killed right before the Olympics, I mean, it was seen as profoundly provocative. Warnings had been issued publicly beforehand that they better not do anything. They better not dare do anything. And yet they did it anyway. So it was TNT on that medal stand. I mean, it was so powerful that uh, Lee Evans, after he set the world record in the four hundred meters, wore a black beret in the in the style of the Black Panthers. uh, After he set a record in the four hundred meters, and and another person on the I think the two other people on the medal stand were also Black Americans, and they wore black berets, but they were smiling on the medal stand and took the berets off during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And they were actually criticized for it in the black community and on the left for for going soft. And uh, John Carlos, he said, like, I don't know. Oh, no, Lee Evans said this to me. He said, I don't know what we could have done short of uh, TNTing the metal stand after what Tommy (laughs) and John did. And Lee is right. Like, they were put in kind of an impossible situation because Tommy Smith and John Carlos grabbed that moment for eternity. And that's the other part of the book that I, tr- I want people to try to get their heads around is not just why did they do what they did, like a historical curio, but why does it still resonate after all this time? Why do we still care? Why did people want to publish this book? Why, you know, all these questions. Like the, the emotion of some of the reviews by people like Michael Eric Dyson, Jesse Jackson, Michael Moore, I mean, are really, really interesting. Like, like it, it's clearly affected people. Uh, in a way that's just beyond, I think what me as someone who was born many years after 1968 could have could have expected. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned the uh, the opposition uh, to what they did on the medal stand, and and as you said earlier, talking about the Olympic movement for human rights, there were uh, black athletes who did not want to participate, and one person who's mentioned in particular in the book is Bob Beeman that that he. You know, he'd been preparing for this event. He wanted to participate in the event, but but one person I want to ask about uh, who did oppose what Smith and Carlos were planning, and it was pretty clear that they were planning something. Uh, was Jesse Owens? So, how does Jesse Owens fit into the into this story?
1: Ah, uh, I mean, this this is a painful part of the story, and you get the feeling that it's a painful story for people like John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Lee Evans. I've talked to all these guys about it, and it's very tough for them. I mean, Jesse Owens was somebody who was brought, who was the the great Olympian from '36, won four gold medals back then at at the Hitler Games, Uh, and then he came back home and found himself that he had to have a job racing horses. I mean, that's where the opportunity is available to him. And Jesse Owens was a college graduate; he was incredibly bright, but the opportunities just were not there. Yet Jesse Owens was brought back into the fold, uh, precisely by Avery Brundage, precisely because, as sort of like the, I mean, the sort of good Negro, bad Negro dynamic, and he was going to be somebody who was who was brought up in that way, uh, and who was presented in that way. And Jesse Owens was then also sent into the locker room to discourage the African American track people from making any kind of a statement. Yet what. Uh, Jesse Owens and Avery Brundage did not understand. Um, is that the gap was not just uh racial, it was generational as well. And Jesse was seen as somebody, I mean, they might as well have sent in uh, uh Bing Crosby to try to <laughs> them from doing something because it was, I mean. And and more evidence that John talks about, that it was more generational than racial, was the incredible solidarity between Carlos Smith and the track stars and the Harvard crew team. The Harvard crew team was the U.S. Olympic crew team, Mm -hmm. and the Harvard crew team stood in solidarity with them, and they accepted and loved their solidarity. It was actually the Harvard crew team that gave John Carlos the, the Olympic Project for Human Rights patch so Peter Norman would have one. After the race, I mean that's how in tune they all were, and that's of course really different than I think sometimes the way it's presented.
0: So I want to talk about the immediate aftermath of the '68 Olympics. So you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, there's a lot of abuse in the in the press and from the Olympic Committee uh, coming down on on John Carlos. He does resume his track career. He continues to to compete. Uh, but then through the 70s and into the 1980s, his situation becomes increasingly desperate. Could you talk about that, please?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it had to do with coming back home and finding that uh, the usual gravy train available for Olympic track stars would just not be there for him. Even though he came back and in 1969, he had his best year ever as a track star. I mean, he's in the Track Hall of Fame for a reason. In 1969, uh, he, was, he was led a national championship team at San Jose State. He set the world record in the 100-yard dash. And yet, once his amateur career was done, there really wasn't nothing much for him. He was able to get a tryout with the Philadelphia Eagles to play football. But his knee was blown out very early on in that process. And there was just, there was just nothing for him nothing whatsoever, and so his life started to really devolve from that point on. I mean, there's just no money. It created an incredible pressure on his family, and uh, his, his, he and his wife had a very, very ugly divorce, and then she took her own life soon thereafter, and I mean, he, would, and he also had the FBI following him like constantly, to the point of which he would invite them inside yeah. for coffee, I mean, it just became like this thing. I mean, can you imagine the feeling like it would be one thing to to, to feel like, uh, you know, you were some kind of relevant person to what was happening in the country and the FBI was treating you. But it was like they were kicking, kicking him when he was down. He had nothing. And still they were tracking him every day, making his life a paranoid hell. And it took him a long time to, to really dig himself out of that. And he did it by actually, I think, being very true to himself and getting a job uh, in the public school system in Palm Springs and being a guidance counselor. And that's what he's done in the last 20 years of his life. And it, it's, that's what he's – he's worked with kids. That's how I found him when I first called him. He was in his office. And I think that that saved him. That really did save him.
0: So looking at that period of the 70s and 80s and in your conversations with, with John, does he look back on what happened in the, the aftermath of, of 68 and then what he had to go through in the 70s and 80s? Does he look back with bitterness?
1: Nah, he's got no regrets whatsoever. 0.0, 0 regrets. He's definitely Well, let me, let, me, st-
0: let me clarify. So he doesn't have regrets, but does he... Um, you know there were people who didn't stand up yeah. in protest uh for instance Brett Musburger uh you know it it oh, I, yeah. I would think looking back at a guy like them him whose career has just gone up in the incent, yeah you could not feel anything but bitterness to the way he yeah, had no, treated yeah no he's
1: got i mean he's got real issues with that like i feel like this book has i really do think has been helpful for him and i actually think the tour is going to be helpful for him just to, to really feel the warm of the the embrace that he's going to get. I mean, I'm, I'm really confident we're going to have some great events and he's going to get a sense of what he's really meant to people. I think he already has that. I think he definitely got it in 2008 when ESPN gave him their Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs and he got a standing ovation from all the famous athletes out there. But even that was tinged with a little bit of bitterness for him because he almost didn't do it because ESPN employs Brent Musburger. Mm -hmm. And so he really wrestled with that. Like, do I want to give my name and my credibility to an organization that would employ someone like him Mm -hmm. who said these things about me? I mean, these are things that he wrestles with every day. He's a fiercely proud person you know there have been times throughout the decades where people have wanted to tell a story or make a movie on his life or do a documentary and he he would rather take no money and not do it than feel like he was being exploited like he's very very conscious of that and he's very he's very serious about that and i mean i've come to respect it very much so yeah, there is there is bitterness there. There's bitterness about. But if you ask me, what's the number one thing now that gets him? It's interesting. It's not probably not what you would expect. It's really less the Brent Musburger people, mm-hmm. and more the people who were back there at that time and try to get some of the credit for it. Mm-hmm. Who didn't do anything, like people who are on that track team. Like, there's a statue of him and Tommy Smith at San Jose State. And there are people from the track team who've asked him, why can't, why isn't, where's my statue? And that just galls him. Like, you didn't do anything, you didn't sacrifice anything. Maybe if you had my scars, we could talk about that. But hey, take down your shirt. Let's see if you've got scars. Because if you don't, I don't want to hear it. So that, that really bothers him because it, there, there is a revi- not a revisionist history, but there's definitely been a revisiting about what he and Tommy did. My favorite um, story is ESPN had this TV show called uh, Five Reasons You Can't Blame, or it's, no, it's Ten Reasons You Can't Blame, and it takes some event in sports history and talks about like ten reasons you can't blame – it would be like uh, Harry Frizzy, the owner of the Red Sox, for selling Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. And they go through just a lot of counterintuitive reasons that you know, you might you – know, just to get you – know, like, hey, there, there's another side of the story here. And they did 10 reasons you can't blame Tommy Smith and John Carlos for what they did. And the number one reason was they were right. Mm-hmm. And I think he appreciates that a lot. But I also think he wants it pretty clear that everybody wasn't right. Just a small group of people were right. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about the, the legacy of, of his protest. And at the beginning of the book, his introduction to the book, he describes the scene of uh, flying uh, to Mexico and, and being on the, the airplane or in the airport and uh, a young man – Comes up to him, you know, apparently a guy in his twenties, and, and looks at him and raises his fist, and and that particular paragraph, you know, as you describe that of what, uh, uh, you know, of how he relates that story, I I really had difficulty figuring out, is he happy in instances like that that he's remembered for this, or is he angered? You know, and he does he does make this point of there's no hello, Mister Carlos, there's no handshake. Yeah, I mean-
1: that was very hard for me to write because I wanted to convey that his feelings were ambiguous. And I don't know if I succeeded in doing that, but it's a mix. Like he's proud to be recognized as anybody would be. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a way that it kind of serves to marginalize what he went through. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it like, you know, It's like the flip side of one-dimensional version of crazy black power stormtrooper. The flip side. Brave freedom fighter who should be lauded for his stance. Yeah. It's like no, the whole thing was much more complicated than that. Particularly the years afterwards where he didn't feel like anybody's freedom fighter. He didn't feel like he was part. I mean, after 68, I mean, that was the apex. The struggle went down after that. I mean, and a lot of people paid a pretty terrible price when that happened, a a much worse price than John Carlos, from Fred Hampton and Mark Clark being killed by the Chicago police uh, to people who became drug addicts, alcoholics, people who went crazy. A lot of people flipped, of course, and went right wing or joined the more mainstream, respectable political process. All of these things were on the table, and, and John Carlos is just one of the many people they were willing to sweep into the dustbin of history and say, well, enough of all that. Mm -hmm. And I think, so I think there's a sense where he feels flattered to be recognized. Like almost it's a mischievous smile on his face, but at the same time, he's kind of like, yeah, they don't know. Well, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and I want to, I want to follow up with that with, uh, you know, thinking about, as you acknowledge, he has these mixed feelings that are, that were hard for you to express and on the next page in that introduction, there's this line, and, and I'll read it, quote, I'm angry that all our political teeth have been subjected to a pop culture root canal. And in reading that and reading through the book, I, I thought about, you know, so there so one there was the protest, but then there's the image of the protest. And, and I was thinking of something analogous to that photo of of Smith and Carlos on the stand, and and really the only thing I could think about is as Somewhat similar is, is the famous p- photo of Che Guevara, where you have this, this image which the Cubans put on all the banners of their revolution. So it had specific meaning. But now, you know, you find it on T-shirts and it's just become this, this kind of iconic picture of, of protest as a fashion statement. And so I wonder, does he, you know, with that, that young man coming to him on the plane and lifting his arm – Does he have a concern that his protest and that image of his protest is going to become, you know, debased by being just part of pop culture?
1: I think he would be honored to have it be part of the tapestry of popular culture, but he wants it to have depth and not just width. He doesn't want it to be like Guevara, you know, a thousand miles wide and half an inch deep. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, then also subjects, you know, the sort of right-wing truth squad, you know, like, this guy's actually a mass killer, and here's the truth about Che Guevara. And Che Guevara obviously isn't around to define his own truth. And he wants to be able to define his own truth and not have it be subject to the whims of others who would exploit it for their own political agenda. Only he and Tommy Smith really have the right to say this is what it was and this is what it stood for everybody else it's it's honestly it's conjecture and it's colored by their own political impulses and I don't say that as it you know some of those impulses I may be incredibly sympathetic with but still it's refracted through the lens of the individuals interpretation unless they're able to speak for themselves and that's what this book is really meant to do. It's to give John the chance to speak for himself.
0: So I want to ask you about athletes and political speech today. And I know this—you've uh, written about this a lot. You've spoken about this a lot. And and in the conclusion to, of to this book, you write a, a somewhat positive conclusion where you see encouraging signs of, uh, uh, you know, political statements, even political protests by by some athletes today. But really, these are you know these are exceptional instances and and just this past weekend, we had the NFL telling one of its players, so it was just the tenth anniversary of nine eleven and the NFL told one of its players that you can't wear red, white, and blue uh, shoes and gloves. We don't want any type of of political statement and um, so I want to ask why why is that today? Why do you think is it is it because of the owners and sponsors of major sports that they want to remove any type of uh, uh, you know potentially divisive political speech. Uh, is it because the players themselves have become uh, have become brands? You know, so the contemporary. Uh, equivalent of Tommy Smith and John Carlos would be Usain Bolt who's now not only a, a spokesman for products he's a spokesman for himself he has his own logo and and so forth so uh, you know what is it do you think that has um, kind of diminished political speech by athletes today?
1: Well the two primary reasons are that sports are a, are a trillion dollar global business. And the effort is to make them as appealing as possible to the largest numbers of people. So any speech that bespeaks of division or controversy uh, is to be expunged as quickly and as ruthlessly as possible. I mean, there is a corporate agenda that that exists before all other considerations. I mean, look at Major League Baseball preventing the New York Mets from wearing hats that last night that said, um, New York fire department, New York police department, they wanted to wear first responder hats on nine 11. And, uh, the league said, we will come down on you hard with extreme prejudice. And if you do just that, so that that's part of it, but I think it's also because you have to look at what politics are like in sport when sports is at its most normal and sports and politics at its most normal is incredibly conservative, incredibly patriotic incredibly militaristic, and the reason for that is that the people who control sports are very right-wing. And I wrote a book about this called Bad Sports, How Owners Are Ruining the Games We Love, and their own politics have become so center stage that I think it actually repels people who would otherwise be sports fans. And you see this, I think, really clearly, frankly, in... I mean, this has existed in sports for decades. It's just on a much bigger scale now, but look at... Avery Brundage's comment after uh, expelling Tommy Smith and John Carlos from Olympic Village, he said they broke the cardinal rule of the Olympics, no politics. I mean, no politics at the Olympics? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Or is it just politics that Avery Brundage disagreed with? So it's not political to offer up the Olympics to Adolf Hitler, but it is political for Tommy Smith and John Carlos to have a stand. I mean, it's all about who gets to determine what politics are.
0: So let me ask you then about the media. Um, so, so you mix with, with other sports writers. And uh, so do you find generally are people in sports media, are they, are they left-leaning people who don't want to talk politics? Are they conservative like owners? Are they uh, apolitical and just, just sports fans? Or are they also concerned with, with kind of their own, uh, their own branding?
1: Um, I think it's a mix. I mean, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean that to be a cop-out answer, yeah, but yeah. That, that really is the answer. I mean, it, it's, it is a mix. But I think far more of them who are political are discouraged from being political than, than one would like to see, and that there are a lot of people who get in touch with me and they say, like, hey, thank you for writing this, as if they couldn't have written it themselves. And that's certainly disturbing. And that's certainly very unfortunate
0: so we're almost out of time and uh I have kind of one one big question I want to ask you know, thinking of the legacy today um so the sixty eight games took place in an age before e s p n before Twitter, before bloggers, before sports radio there was just there were the networks, there were the newspapers, and that was it. And I want to ask you how you think a scenario like the Mexico City protest would play in today's sports media environment. And I was trying to think of a hypothetical scenario that would be similarly divisive today as, as Smith and Carlos's protest. And I think I got one. So let me pose this to you. Let's say next summer at the London Olympics, a gold medal winning gymnast, so one of America's sweetheart gymnasts, she goes up to the stand, she receives her medal, and before the anthem plays, she unzips her warm up jacket to show a t shirt with the with the statement, "Stop attacks on public teachers and public employees with a with a union logo on it." How do you think that would play today?
1: I think that would be strong, honestly, and I think. I think, but I think there are all kinds of statements that would be strong that we could discuss. Well, uh, yeah,
0: I mean, it would be strong, but how would it be received? It's not so much the the, the particular statement. How would it be received well, in the world I, of Twitter, ESPN, and yeah? So
1: I mean, I think that what the world of what that supplies is is, is something that's largely good, but also a little bit bad, uh, because you have Twitter, because you have uh, all kinds of other uh, this, that, and the other out there. Um, because you have Facebook and all the rest of it, it allows for much more diversity of opinion. It allows for people in a much more public, widespread, mass media kind of way to spring to the defense of, de- of dissenting athletes. And like, I could just give you a little example: is in 1992, um, Olden Polynes, who was a basketball player from Haiti, did an in-season hunger strike to protest the treatment of HIV-positive Haitian refugees and Bill Clinton's backtracking of a promise right after he was elected. I think it was early 93 when Bill Clinton backtracked and um, Olden Polonese was excoriated for it in the press. I think if that happened because you know, you're know you hurting the team by doing a hunger strike, blah, blah, blah. I think if that happened today, you'd have so many people online, bloggers, human rights people, praising him that it would actually drown out the hate. The problem though with that is that it's very much a you know follow the shiny ball. Mm-hmm like here today, gone to tomorrow, mm-hmm. 24-hour sports media environment. And that prevents, I think, the kind of introspection that's necessary to make some of these moments really congeal and become part of the, 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 the forever firmament. I think the only thing that would really change that is it's less about media and more than if an athlete's struggle is linked with um, a much broader social movement. That's causing daily repercussions in global society. I think that that's the missing x factor It's really less about the media, less about honing the perfect statement, less about the perfect zap action, and much more about the the material circumstances of protests taking place around the action itself.
0: So we're not likely to have with the uh the enormity of the sports media world we're not likely to have a an event of the magnitude and the lasting legacy of, of what Carlos and Smith did.
1: Uh, That is correct. That is correct. But I think we will in the future.
0: So let me ask you, uh, so you're a bookish guy and you get to, uh, you get to mix with a lot of athletes. A lot of people who are outside of, of the athletic world would consider cool. How cool is John Carlos?
1: He's so cool, to quote David Manet, when sheep go to sleep, they count him.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Dave Zirin about his new co-authored book, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, published in 2011 by Haymarket Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications, on subjects from philosophy to South Asian studies. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books in Sports at the iTunes Store and link to our Facebook page, where you can offer feedback, make suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.